Exploring Spiritual Questions podcast, Episode 7 Difficult People, How to Get On With Them Hello, my name is Stephen Russell Lacey. Being stuck at home during the pandemic and not meeting folk, we can get to feel a bit isolated, maybe feeling a little lonely. Are you missing those people you normally see at the places you usually go to? A friend's house, the sports club, work, the pub? When we have to go without something, then perhaps we value it a bit more. Does this include the company of everyone we know? What about those difficult people who cause us problems, who we have not bothered to get to know better? All of us are quite capable at times of being difficult. I guess I am no exception. I suspect that not everybody shares my sense of humour. I've noticed my family groan when I make a casual quip that apparently only I find amusing, or they complain if I use the TV remote for my choice of comedy show. I suppose I can be difficult over what food I will eat. But I guess you're thinking some people you know are even more trying, harder to get on with because of the way they communicate. Yes, difficult people trigger tension in us and then and then misunderstanding more easily arises. We remember the odd occasion when this led to a sharp word, an unnecessary argument or even a full-blown growl. Yes, such individuals can feel like a real pain. At times they get on our nerves, irritate us. Some even make us feel depressed. I'm afraid even some relatives can be like this on occasions. The temptation is to try to avoid them, albeit in a socially acceptable way. Perhaps you like to escape from their company as soon as possible. The trouble is, if we were to do this with everyone who might be difficult, then we could easily have no one to talk to. In addition, unresolved issues with others can result in, in what, brooding resentment? That sort of thing gets us nowhere. When we nurse a grudge, it inwardly eats away at any positive feelings we might have. When the pandemic is over and you are released back into the world, the world you used to know, you might want to learn to better cope with difficult people. One way of doing this is to better understand what it is about them that is such a problem and how we get sucked into uncomfortable experiences with them. Then perhaps we can hope to get the relationship on a better footing. So exactly what is it about difficult people that we find a problem? Actually, there are many reasons. A neighbour or workmate who is at times rude or 
high-handed, perhaps overcritical, or the sort of person who is constantly complaining about one thing or another, or who makes a lot of demands on our time, or who simply just happens to have an unpleasant body odour. I must admit, I do tend to steer clear of anyone who reeks of tobacco. There are less obvious types of difficult people that we come across. You know the sort of person. They think they're right all the time and they always want to have the last word. Or they're nosy and they're quick to gossip or invade our privacy, leaving us quite uncomfortable. Or who want to provoke an emotional reaction in us and so wind us up until we overreact in some way. Some even manage to subtly manoeuvre us into a tight corner from which it is difficult to escape from doing what they want. Now, I would suggest, despite these problems, it is actually possible to get on better with most difficult people. To get on better as long as their conduct is not too extreme, of course. In this podcast, I'm going to explore four suggestions on how to do this. Firstly, respect them for their strengths. Secondly, practice empathy. Thirdly, correct any unreasonable thinking in yourself. And fourthly, remember your own faults. Shirley was really getting fed up with her new next-door neighbour, who played his music loudly most nights after coming home from work. A few times she had called round to ask him to turn the volume down, which was done each time with a promise to continue to keep the music quiet. But the level of loudness would resume the next night, and she soon realised she was dealing with someone who she couldn't trust to keep his word. The noise level probably wasn't bad enough to make a complaint to the local authority, but the adjoining walls of their flats were not soundproofed, and she was seriously wondering about moving home. Alternatively, she would have to somehow sort the issue out with her, with him herself. But next time she tackled the guy, she wasn't sure she could trust herself not to shout and lose her temper. When we criticise, it is so important to keep the matter in proportion, neither overdoing things nor being too timid. If she were to come over as arrogant and loud, she probably wouldn't be listened to properly. And were she to resort to insults and hostility, well, the chances are the door would be slammed in her face. When you criticise them, difficult people with thin skins tend to see this as a personal attack. Don't they get shirty and defensive? Don't they bite your head off? 
you probably would think twice before taking the risk of saying what you really think to them. Yet, keeping quiet means not doing anything about any interpersonal problem. I recall to mind the words of Winston Churchill. He said, Criticism may not be agreeable, but it is necessary. It fulfills the same function as pain in the human body. It calls attention to an unhealthy state of things. So, what's the best way to criticise someone? The common advice psychologists give is respect the individual and focus the criticism on the behaviour that needs changing, the difficulty in what people actually do or actually say. Well, to my mind, this does mean distinguishing between the person and their actions. We are recommended to criticise in a precise way. It is important to explain what it is that the other person is doing, that is such a problem for us, and how we feel about it. So don't say, you are causing me grief, but say, I feel your noise is causing me grief. If the individual is respected with a bit of humour, and due credit is given to the possibility of their sympathy for your difficulty, it is vastly more likely that your criticism will be understood and taken seriously. Having respect for those difficult people who challenge us with their tiresome conduct, well, it sounds much easier said than done, doesn't it? Yes, it is surely true that difficulties cannot be constructively addressed where there is disrespect condescension, disdain or scorn shown to the person, doesn't it just create bad, bad feeling? Zig Zagler said, choosing the right word matters. You can disagree without being disagreeable. The lack of respect for the individual becomes the issue rather than the behaviour causing the difficulty in the first place. I would say that having genuine respect for someone does make it easier in making our criticism with patience, not making things worse by personal animosity. Poor Shirley, she had the disadvantage of not knowing the neighbour she wanted to criticise. It's so much easier to point out a fault if you do have an ongoing friendly relationship with a person, the one causing you difficulty, you have a great, greater chance of counting on their sympathy or embarrassment. However, she could try to get into rapport with him before, before voicing her issue. When a relationship has already turned sour, then it may need a lot more work to make things better waiting before the right time and place arrive to make getting a hearing for your point. Perhaps if she invited him into her own house when somebody else was also present, 
when, at a time, his music was on, playing in his place, then her neighbour could be more easily able to appreciate the nuisance he was causing. Also, it is easier to have a calmer attitude to someone if you can respect them for their good points. Another reason for better getting to know the person posing you a difficulty. So, Shirley made an effort to look for the positives. She did speak to one or two people who knew something about her noisy neighbour. She found out his job meant he had to work hard for long hours. So she wasn't without sympathy towards him. She also found out he was a helpful sort of guy. Someone whose car was playing up said that her neighbour helped him mend it. Of course, she still had no direct first-hand experience of him, but just knowing these few things helped her to find more calmness of mind, the calmness she needed to reassert her complaint with respect and with patience. Freed of the desire to shout at him, she found the time and the patience and tolerance to persuade him to use headphones. She even lent him some to encourage him to buy his own. So I would say that people can be helped to be less difficult if, and only if, we respect them for their strengths. Now the second item on my list was about empathy. Now, do you know how empathy might help? Well, here's an example. Bill's teenage stepsister, his stepsister, she was often blowing her top. She often got herself worked up about things and upset. He didn't know how to handle her. At times, it drove him mad. He wanted to shout at her, but of course that just made her worse. Getting away from her emotionality wasn't easy. The family lived in such a small house. When he disagreed with what she said, then of course she would get angrier or panickier. His father just assumed the girl's nature and age caused these frequent upsets, but... Bill, he wondered whether mm, whether she was simply using strong expression of feeling. Perhaps not on purpose, but perhaps she was using feeling to manipulate him and others, just so she could get what she wanted. Perhaps more attention for herself, a bit more sympathy, or getting her own way in things. Perhaps she was manipulating others by using her emotionality in a way she did not even realise herself. Bill told his girlfriend he was thinking of moving out from the family home because of her, even though he couldn't afford to. But do you really know her? What has she been through? he was asked. What has been her past? 
who had to admit he didn't know much at all. His stepsister had joined the family only the previous year, having been living in another part of the country with her own mother, who had been divorced from Bill's father. Had her mother worked full-time? Had other kids bullied the girl at school? How had her mother and her mother's new partner treated her? It helps to understand why difficult people have got to where they are now, seeing things from their perspective. Then we can more easily make allowance for those who have been through the mill. Of course, difficult behaviour should still be tackled. But even criminal courts take into account mitigating circumstances before passing sentence. Having empathy helps us to feel better about someone. Well, pondering these points and these questions, Bill was able to put aside his indignation. He was able to start to talk with his stepsister with much more sensitivity and patience. In so doing, he sensed that the girl had not had an easy time. She wasn't ready to describe her past troubles, but he came to realise she felt undervalued and had a general feeling of frustration with life. So, whenever she did get upset, he found it a bit easier to keep his cool. He discovered that trying to reason with her when she was upset was actually a waste of time, but later she was more likely to listen when he questioned some of her more what he thought were outrageous statements. Yes, empathy doesn't always come easily to some of us, but we can gain something of it by looking for and possibly finding some answers. Is the person causing me difficulty under time pressure? Do they have to face current troubles that I don't know about? Do they have unmet needs? Are they still, are they still dealing with, with past emotional trauma? Are they hurting even if their suffering arises from some of their own mistakes and blunders? We may not be able to change someone's difficult behaviour, but we can change our own feelings about them. And having empathy helps with our tolerance and patience. And it is this that can indirectly affect the relationship. Well, okay, so far I've been talking about showing respect and having empathy. The third suggestion I'd like to make is to do with the way we make mistaken perceptions. Now, how does correcting our thinking help us deal with difficult people? To illustrate, Jack had a friend. His friend seemed to have a knack of getting Jack to do things Jack didn't really want to do. Setting up tables at the village hall, lending him his mower, visiting a mutual acquaintance in hospital. 
looking after his pet cat. And it was a bit of a mystery to Jack how all this happened. He was starting to feel uncomfortable whenever he met his friend. The guy might expect something else from him. Nothing asked actually was an imposition in itself, but other people could see a pattern emerging. For Jack was a conscientious sort of person. Clearly, his friend was an expert at latching on to Jack's feeling of social obligation, even at times hooking into his sense of guilt. Of course, guilty feelings are real enough and can make us anxious, but in Jack's case they weren't always justified, for he tended to feel uneasy if he felt anyone's disapproval of his behaviour, even in any minor way. The friend seemed instinctively able to take advantage of this, but it would be Jack's loss if he eventually avoided the person altogether, for he enjoyed the tennis they played and the conversation they shared in the club. Better to find ways of responding to the stream of demands made without giving in all the time. Perhaps you have experienced something similar. Someone does a favour for you, but there are hidden strings attached. If you don't meet their expectation, they imply you are ungrateful. Perhaps a relative who doesn't mind asking you to buy things for them and tries to make you feel guilty for not being willing. Worst case scenario is someone constantly making you feel bad, always criticising your actions as a way of gaining your submission so they can get their own way. We could advise Jack to consider what exactly his friend expected. This is what I mean by correcting our thinking and perceptions. Jack could reflect on the limits to his responsibility towards his friend, to ask himself what are the proper priorities for his own time. Yes, to be helpful when he can, but also to do his own jobs, to meet his own family commitments, to satisfy his own needs. How can he cut his own lawn if his friend has his mower? How can he help his son with his schoolwork if he is spending the evening at the hospital? How stressed would his own pet feel with a strange animal in the house for two weeks? And when considering whether to stop meeting up with his friend, perhaps he needs to challenge some of his own assumptions about him. Spotting the ideas that we carry around in our heads regarding others is one secret to dealing better with apparently difficult people. For such ideas lead us to jump to conclusions about them. We overgeneralize about others. The thought might be something like, Okay, I am overgeneralizing. After all, although my friend knows how to make use of people, he is not selfish and he is a good sport. 
Maybe Jack himself is at fault for allowing this aspect of their relationship to get this far. He could ask himself if he could sometimes just say no, revealing honesty's reason for not allowing his friend to take advantage of his amenable nature. The overconscious person like Jack tends to have a somewhat mistaken conscience. He or she feel guilt where in some things no no guilt need be felt at all. They, they tend to assume that just as they should always be doing the right thing, so should others. It's as if they believe that everybody should treat everyone else, especially me, in a fair and considerate manner. Actually, don't we all tend to see other people in this polarised way? Aren't people all a bit of a mixture, though? Even those we, we find difficult to get on. Don't they also have their good points? The examples of Shirley and Bill and Jack illustrate this. Also, their situations show how we may not be able to directly change a difficult person for the better, but we can sometimes indirectly influence the problematic behaviour. We can do this by changing the way we respond to them through respect, through empathy, and through correcting unreasonable thinking. And we can do it by remembering our own faults, and this is our fourth suggestion. Illustrated by Zoe, who works in computing, an experienced software programmer and systems manager. Her job was to supervise a small information technology team. Unfortunately, there was one difficult member of the group. He was skillful in various aspects of the work, but he didn't know it all. It's the old story. We find it hard to appreciate what we don't know because we don't know what it is. <laughs> Without some humility, Without some humility, we're not open enough to learning new ways. However, he's, this guy seemed to have an inflated idea of his own worth and behaved as if he were right all the time and so deserved to have the last say. It was as if he had learned he could get his own way by wearing others down by argument. To get projects done properly, Zoe had to get the best out of subordinates. Her challenge was to do this with someone who wouldn't take correction or criticism. He was full of self-justification. But she knew he would be difficult to replace. So how could she find the staying power to persuade someone like this, to whom she needed to do things differently? Perhaps you know someone similar. Difficult people who would argue that white is black, who, when you point out to them what they don't like to hear, make excuses or change the subject. How do you find the energy and forbearance to get through their thick skulls? Zoe attended a Catholic church. 
In discussing this issue with her priest, she admitted that a certain pride in herself was part of the problem. She also liked to win arguments. She came to realise that it's easier to tolerate someone's faults if you can actually recognise similar failings in yourself. Our lenience towards our own blemishes generalises to acceptance of the weakness in difficult people. Are we not all each a flawed work in progress? I would say that when we see this, it helps us to feel connected with others in the same boat as ourselves. It facilitates a kind attitude towards our common humanity. In fact, the priest reminded her that Christ's message was about not being judgmental. She had forgotten how our own judgmental feelings towards people makes their actions more difficult. More difficult for us, that is. Stop this attitude and we may stop playing their game. If we can be less superior, less condemning in the way we treat them, then maybe they will become less difficult in the way they relate to, all, to us. In addition, Zoe fastened on the notion of self-judgment. By judging herself harshly, she was also judging this difficult colleague. Accepting our own faults and the failings in others does not mean agreeing with them. We can still be self-critical, but not do so without indulging in harsh self-criticism. Likewise, we can be clear about someone else's faults without getting on our high horse about them. Respect and patience, kindness and tolerance for others, they may sound like a tall order, but this order can lead to less unproductive relationships, and it is a higher calling. I've tried to show that although we cannot change someone, we can at least influence the way they speak and the way they act in specific situations. In this way, give us less of a headache. And we do this by one, respecting them for their strengths. Two, practicing empathy. Three, correcting any unreasonable thinking in ourselves. Four, recalling to mind our own faults. I do hope you found this podcast episode interesting and helpful. I hope to do more on this topic of relationships in future episodes.